My name is Warren Burt. Uh, you'll see on things written, Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, my association with Baltimore was that I lived there for the first six months of my life and my parents hated it and got out. I've been back to Baltimore exactly once since then and that was to attend a wedding of some conceptual artists. And at the wedding, I began talking to this uh, vampire. I was in a six foot tall leech costume and the vampire turned out to be John Waters. And we had a wonderful time, lovely guy. Uh, anyway, uh, they got, my parents got out of Baltimore early. I was raised in uh, Northern New York State, outside of Albany, New York, and uh, went to a Catholic military academy for high school, may God help us. Uh, and then I went to the State University of New York at Albany, and my composition teacher there was Joel Chatterby, uh, and he was uh, very much involved in the early days of analog synthesis, and digital synthesis, and computer programming, and so on. Uh, so, uh, and there were a whole bunch of us who were uh, sort of interesting students there, uh, three of whom were myself and Randy Cohen and Rich Gold. Uh, and uh, Rich eventually went on to uh, become director of research at Xerox Park until he died very early, like 50 years old, of some sort of meningitis thing or something. Uh, Randy. Uh, went to, after Albany, went to CalArts, California Institute of the Arts, studied with Morton Sabotnik, and then when he left CalArts, he uh, got involved in the early days of No Wave uh, in New York, playing with people like Boris Police Band, uh, and uh, then he basically gave up music and became the ethicist for the New York Times. Oh, that's right, before he did the ethicist, he had about 15 years of working for David Letterman, and they won a stream of a string of Emmys for their uh, stunts that they pulled. Uh, and so Randy now lives in New York and writes. Uh, I went to UC San Diego, and uh, after four years at UC San Diego, working with a whole bunch of interesting people, came out to Australia in '75 to uh, Keith Humble was at. Uh, San Diego and he recruited three of us from UC San Diego and he recruited four of his best grad students from Melbourne Uni and the seven of us with Keith then founded the music department at La Trobe University in 75 and I was at La Trobe off and on until uh, 81 and then I left to become a freelancer and I was basically a freelance composer including uh, six months in 84 where I actually worked as an employee for Serge Sharepnin uh, as opposed to just working with him, you know, uh, informally. Uh, and uh, then 2001, 2002, I was at the University of Illinois for six months each year, and then was back in Australia. And 2004 to 2010 was at the University of Wollongong uh, with Greg Schemer and a bunch of people, and we uh, were doing all sorts of microtonal research. And 2010 came back to Melbourne and pretty soon got involved in teaching out at Box Hill Institute. And as William Burroughs says, and so the years passed. Uh, a lot of stuff happened in the meanwhile. Like, I was one of the people that helped founded Clifton Hill Community Music Center, which ran from 76 until 83, uh, which was a, uh, you know, a community music center that basically uh, 
uh, the avant-garde took over and used as their training ground, which was quite wonderful. Uh, and uh, with Ernie Altoff and Bridget Burke and Carolyn Connors, we ran a thing for, I think it was eight years at uh, the Linden Arts Center in St. Kilda called the Linden Mu Sunday Musicales. It was once a month on Sunday and it ran for eight years. And uh, it was uh, basically uh, six people a night and we tried to put uh, no, no money paid for anybody, no funding needed. City of St. Kilda paid for the posters for the posters, gave us the space, that was it. Uh, and uh, we tried to have as wide a stylistic variety as possible on the concerts. The best one, thing I remember the most was uh, uh, on a first half we had Jazz Duke, the sound poet, doing his Dada sound poetry, immediately followed by Daryl Buckley on a ten-string guitar playing a piece that Milton Babbitt had written specially for him for this ten-string guitar. And uh, uh, the thing that was so wonderful about that was Jazz was really taken with the ten-string guitar piece and Daryl was really taken with Jazz's poetry. So, you know, people that you would think are completely opposite ends of the spectrum were juxtaposed and liked each other. So that was good. Uh, all sorts of things like that along the way. Uh, technologically, uh, I started off playing with the smaller Moog that they had at the State University of New York at Albany and then moved to the very big uh, CEMS system designed by Joel Chatterby, which was eight Moog sequencers and eight three-way switches and a digital clock with a whole bunch of outputs and six oscillators and five filters, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It was a big system and no keyboard. Uh, so uh, you actually had to think of this thing in terms of uh, uh, algorithmic stuff. I think probably the uh, high point for the CEMS system was in 72. I had already left Albany for San Diego. But in 72, John Cage came through and did his uh, piece Birdcage in the CEMS studio. And they had a whole bunch of tape recorders that went into all the CEMS stuff. And Cage was there with a stopwatch and a score and everybody had instructions. And there's even a film by Hans Helms about it. And uh, you see him sitting going, oh, 452. Tape B, ring modulation, 515, tape C, stop, 525, tape A, amplitude modulation. And so people would bring in and out the, they had a crew of like six, seven people, each one just doing you know, individual things. And uh, they produced, I think it was 12 tapes or eight tapes, which were then played, you know, in real time mixed to make the birdcage. Uh, so uh, I think that was probably the high point of the CEMS system. Although certainly I made a bunch of pieces with it, Joel made a bunch of pieces with it and so on. I went to UC San Diego. They had a small Moog studio. Uh, I think it was the equivalent of like a Moog 3. You know, a keyboard, a ribbon controller, nine oscillators, etc. Uh, and they had a bunch of other you know, smaller auxiliary gear. And then in the other studio, there was uh, a very large Buchla system, uh, four sequencers, uh, uh, four touch-sensitive keyboards, which was really nice, uh, lots of oscillators, 
And it turned out that that system was designed by Robert Erickson, who was teaching at UC San Diego at the point, that time. He was my teacher for a little while. Uh, and I had been, in fact, doing some really, I began doing some really complex Buchla things. And it never even occurred to me that he was giving me, you know, really, I mean, I, it, I realized he was giving me good advice. But it never occurred to me to ask him why, since he wasn't, he didn't do electronics, uh, why he uh, was able to give such good advice. You know, you never ask your teacher that question. Turns out he designed that system. Uh, and uh, he actually had advice on that system from his teacher, who was also at UCSD, although only in an emeritus function, which was Ernst Krennic. And Krennic, when I was at UC San Diego, uh, was in fact doing a whole bunch of pieces for acoustic instruments and electronic sounds. And uh, all the establishment, and you can even read it in John Stewart's biography of Ernst Krennic, thought these pieces were an old man gone senile. Uh, why does he have these elegant lines in the instruments and this really clunky, crappy electronic sound? Really crude stuff. Meanwhile, all of us grad students at UC San Diego, every time there's a new Krennic piece, we're going, he's one of us. Uh, and uh, Krennic was uh, one of the first cabs off the rank to get a Buchla system. Uh, and so, uh, anyway, the, uh, a number of interesting people there working with that system. There was a Canadian guy, Reinhard Berg, who's still around and doing mostly free improv up in Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, Ernie Morgan was a, came to us from Mills College, uh, where he'd worked with Bob Ashley on their Buchla, and he produced a whole bunch of uh, really interesting electronic stuff. He died about three years ago uh, while surfing. Uh, and uh, he just had a heart attack and died. Uh, and his widow contacted me and said, would you like Ernie's tapes? And so I have now the entire tape archive of Ernie Morgan, and uh, I've converted a lot of it to digital, and uh, we're looking for someone who'd be willing to publish it. Uh, if we ever find him, I don't know, if not, I'll just put him on my website otherwise. Here, have this stuff for free. You know, so uh, uh, while at San Diego, I also, began designing my own gear. Uh, another thing I did at San Diego, we had a Scalatron organ, a microtonal organ, on loan from Motorola for about two weeks. And I just dived in and did a whole bunch of things with that. That was quite fun. Uh, at San Diego, they founded an institution called at first the Project for Music Experiment, and then it became the Center for Music Experiment. And uh, that had an analog studio and a computer studio and a video studio and a large space where dancers could rehearse and all sorts of things happened there. Pauline Oliveros began working with all her women friends in the ensemble or maybe the Mirror of Venus ensemble, although it was never called that. Uh, and they were developing the sonic meditation things. Kenneth Gaburo had his group, the New Music Choral Ensemble, number four, and that was uh, three incredible singers, uh, two of which were professional, one wasn't, who cares, uh, and five dancers, who also, most of them were really good singers. And uh, so they did all sorts of movement, voice, etc. pieces, uh, multimedia things. Uh, and uh, 
Jean-Charles Francois and uh, John Silber and Keith Humble uh, with Hia Park, who is a Korean dancer, had a group called Kiva, K-I-V-A, just like the Native American ceremonial space. Uh, and they were one of the first free improv groups on the West Coast. Uh, they uh, did a really amazing work. And then there was Roger Reynolds, who was directing the computer music and stuff. And in the analog studio, uh, we had a very large Serge system that I had designed and built for them. And uh, then a John Roy Daisy system, which I convinced them to buy. Uh, and uh, Bruce Rittenbach, one of the fellows, built a very large professional synthesizer. And Steve Beck uh, designed a video encoder box so that we could take sig sim signals from the analog gear and put it into the video realm. And we did a whole bunch of pieces there. Ed M. Swiller, the video artist and science fiction painter and choreographer and so on. Uh, Ed was there for about six months in residence and did a whole bunch of interesting pieces with the extended vocal techniques ensemble, which I was also involved in, which was six of us researching the limits of the human voice. And uh, he did a whole bunch of pieces with us with three cameras, black and white cameras, into the three red, green, and blue inputs of the Beck box, and then just straight mixing. And so you get two people facing each other, and uh, the cameras are just slightly misaligned. And when they move, I mean, you get wonderful color mixes and so on. And they're just looking at each other going, <laughs> you know, things like that. So uh, I don't know how that's going to translate to a recording, but, you know, uh, tongues stuck out and cheeks puffing. <laughs> uh, and uh, anyway, you see, uh, so CME was a uh, hotbed of activity. And while there, I was recruited by Keith Humble to uh, come out to La Trobe in 75 to uh, help found the music department at La Trobe University. And so he said, what should we have in the studio? And so I specified a very big Serge system, uh, 12 panels, and two John Roy Daisy systems. And uh, a rich guy gave us a Scalatron Motorola organ which has disappeared. That's a really tragedy. I don't know what happened to it, but it, it would have needed hundreds of dollars in refurbishments, but still, it disappeared. You know, don't know what happened to it. And maybe it's in some closet out at La Trobe still. Uh, and uh, uh, a uh, EMS, as in Synthy 100, uh, an EMS uh, synth, uh, what was it called? Uh, it was their video synthesizer, Spectre, the EMS Spectre video synthesizer all of which I think are now at mess. Uh, and uh, I made a whole bunch of pieces with those. I mean, tons and tons of stuff. I remember one piece, John McCackie, the conductor, uh, his nickname at the time was The Shadow, because he could disappear quickly. You know, you're talking with, you and John and somebody else are talking, and then the conversation goes to something between you and somebody else, and it's not something John's interested in. Where'd he go? He's gone. Anyway, so we did a piece called Shadow Drum, where he plays timpani. And I have a black and white camera on the timpani, and that's going through the EMS Spectre. Uh, but all of Makaki is gone, totally erased. And there's only like light patterns, light levels. And so, and then there's also a delay in the Serge. 
So you get these light patterns, which come off someone playing a, a timpani really slowly, and you have the timpani sound unmodified. So that was sort of fun. And then I did a uh, huge video piece, 80 minutes long, with lots and lots of Super 8 animation. And uh, I remember I took like the train from uh, Flinders Street out to Bittern at the end of the Stony Point line. And uh, at this point it was all red rattlers so you could lower the windows. So I just put the porta pack outside the window of the train and had 80 minute tracking shot. Uh, that became the background for the piece. And then everything else was mixed on top. And all that stuff got then processed through the EMS Spectre, which in fact eliminated most of the uh, detail, the beautiful detail of all the black and white stuff being juxtaposed, washed out totally. Uh, I guess if I were older and wiser, I would have figured out a way to turn down the thresholds and have more detail. But I was young and reckless. I wanted swaths of color. Uh, so uh, in San Diego, I had also built a box called Aardvarks 4, which was 16 random control voltage generators, or yeah, random control voltage generators. Uh, four just counting to 10 sequencers, you know, 4017 chips, basically. Uh, a whole bunch of 4016 gates in, out, and on, off. Uh, and a couple of mixers and two voltage controlled filters and a uh, panner, a quad panner. Uh, and uh, that box with Serge stuff that I built later uh, formed the basis for what I did in terms of analog stuff for a good 10 years. And uh, then in, uh, when I got to uh, Latrobe, I also, uh, uh, in addition to their system, I designed, and we, we imported the system from CME. They were going to break up their analog studio about 78, 79. We're all computer now. We don't deal with that analog stuff. So we bought that for the Clifton Hill Community Music Center. And then I built my own Serge, which was, uh, and while I was at, San, at Latrobe, there was an engineer, Julian Driscoll, and he actually uh, helped me design another box to augment Aardvark's 4, which was called Aardvark 7. And this was simply three panels of 4017 gates, or 4017 sequencers, you know, just divide by 10 counters, 16 of those, and then a whole panel of nothing but 4016 gates. And so you could take the counters and put them into the gates and set up sequences of sequences of sequences of recounting and recounting and basically get just intonation. All based on the subharmonic series, of course, but because uh, you're working off a really high clock. Uh, and then Julian Driscoll built a few modules, and uh, one of the things he built for me was five divided by 31 counters. Uh, and so I could now go down to the 31st subharmonic. Uh, and then it was 82 or 83, I actually got myself an AIM-65, a microcomputer. And uh, Serge Cherepnin gave me a fourth chip so I could program the AIM in fourth. And uh, uh, again, I built some really crude D to A converters for it. And uh, the AIM at that point had 4K of memory and I expanded it to a mighty 32K of memory. And with 32K of memory, I could actually do real-time sound synthesis. Okay, you're reading the, me reading the memory of the computer for your waveforms. 
in some way, form, or another, which gets modified. Uh, and uh, uh, so, yeah, I had the AIM 65, and I had Aardvarks 7 and Aardvarks 4, and the Surge modules. Uh, oh, and Ron, in 1975, Ron Nagorka, who had been at UC San Diego with me, he and I formed a group called the Plastic Platypus. And what Plastic Platypus did was lo-fi real-time electronics. And our main instrument was the portable cassette recorder. And so we did all these pieces with like, in fact, we toured Europe in 79 with two suitcases. And one suitcase was seven mono cassette recorders and associated, uh, you know, little tiny mixers and things. Uh, and uh, a typical piece, uh, a typical plastic platypus piece, would be a piece that I wrote, in inverted commas, called Hebraic Variations. And I played viola, sort of. Uh, I'm maybe not the world's worst viola player, but close to it. And so on the viola, I'm playing Summertime by George Gershwin, uh, which has its own cultural history. Here's a white Jewish composer in South Carolina writing a tune which is supposed to express the essence of uh, the African-American experience on the islands off the coast of South Carolina. And it's actually in an old Jewish mode. Summertime and the living is easy. Uh, so I'm playing that on the viola. While I'm doing that, uh, there's a little mic in front of me which is going into a cassette recorder. That cassette recorder has like a one or two minute loop cassette on it. And so I'll be playing Summertime. And after two minutes, Ron Nagorka, or a minute, Ron Nagorka will come over and open up the t cassette recorder and pull out that loop and take that to another cassette recorder and puts a fresh loop in the one that's recording me, presses record there, goes over with the recorded one, puts that in another cassette recorder. Attached to that smaller cassette recorder is a 10 meter long, maybe eight meter long cable with a loudspeaker on the end of it. He then begins whirling that like a bull roarer, that speaker playing the uh, you know viola. And uh, which, of course, for, from my point of view, and my microphone is going to be right. And uh, after a certain amount of time, he puts down that loudspeaker, runs over, grabs that cassette recorder, puts it in the playback machine, puts a blank cassette, or maybe takes the first one into the yeah you know, the the viola machine, and we build it up layer on layer on layer until about 15 to 18 minutes in what you've got is this shrieking, screaming band of distorted viola sounds. And of course, my playing is distorting the Gershwin original like crazy. And Gershwin is distorting the African-American platonic original outrageously. Uh, and so, you know, as Ron Nagorka says, the very essence of electronics is distortion. So every level of that piece was about distortion. Uh, such a typical plastic platypus piece. Uh, and so I was dealing with that as well. Uh, in the late 80s, uh, as well as discovering the Casio SK-1 and SK-5, which got added to the arsenal of little cheap electronics, 
by this time I was doing more cheap electronic stuff with Ernie Altoff than I was with Ron Nagorka. But uh, yeah, we began doing a lot with things like SK-1s and SK-5s and doing all sorts of pieces. Uh, but I also got a real computer. Uh, and it was at this point, by 88, I had made the acquaintance of John Dunn, who was a software designer, I say was, he recently died. Uh, he was, I think he did uh, the first video game, Superman. He was the guy who did that. And uh, he also did the first, I think, paint, electronic paint program for uh, the Amiga. And he had a, uh, he had an algorithmic uh, composing program called Music Box. And this is, we're still in the days of DOS. This is on the PC, not on the Mac. Uh, he was, uh, uh, it was still in the days of DOS. So your modules were little columns of uh, hexadecimal numbers. And uh, you would take one hexadecimal number, click on it, and that would connect to another hexadecimal number. So that was how you did patching. And so your screen looks like all these little strings of hexadecimal numbers, which are lighting each other up. But it was completely algorithmic and very powerful. And in fact, this was actually released to the public a year before Max. Ah, it's this whole parallel algorithmic development thing that turned, took place only on the PC. Uh, Dunn had a little company, Algorithmic Arts, and eventually it became uh, Soft Step and eventually became Art Wonk and Music Wonk. And then John died before he could convert Art Wonk to Windows 10. So uh, Art Wonk is now just dead unless you have a Windows 8 machine. Uh, but Music Wonk survived quite well. And Music Wonk is now on the website and John's widow, Marianne Clark, who is the uh, sonification of proteins lady at Texas Wesleyan University. Uh, and she uses the stuff regularly to do DNA sonification. Uh, so uh, she's made it free and keeps the Algorithmic Arts website going with uh, Music Wonk now freely available. Uh, and uh, I was very involved in the development of Art Wonk and Music Wonk for about 10, 12 years. Uh, and uh, that takes us pretty close to the present. I guess the other thing is uh, about seven or eight years ago, I began writing reviews for uh, Soundbites magazine. And because of that, I uh, now uh, do like three new bits of software every two months. And I've gone through a whole bunch of stuff like Spitfire stuff and UVI stuff and so on and so on. Uh, so uh, that sort of, and I, also I got involved in the iPad world. And so I'm now some sort of an expert in uh, music on tablets or music, music for tablets. Yeah. I like the drug reference to music on tablets, but the editor said music for tablets. I left Albany and went to UC San Diego. Randy Cohen and Rich Gold left Albany and went to California Institute of the Arts. And while at CalArts, they uh, got involved with Serge Cherepnin, who was a junior faculty member there at that point. And uh, Serge had formerly worked with Mort Sabotnik at New York University. And when Mort came out to CalArts, I think he brought Serge with him. And so everybody had the idea that they're should be a people synthesizer, something that musicians could probably build themselves, 
and which would be cheaper than the uh, you know multi-thousand modes and buklas, and uh, yet still be really powerful, not be just a cheesy little box of two oscillators and a joystick. And uh, the price at that time for the kit, uh, which would produce a four or six panel system, was 750 bucks, which I guess would be about 2,000 bucks in today's money, but which still is sort of affordable. And if you wanted less modules, you'd pay less money. Uh, you know, I know a number of people who just made one panel of stuff. But the standard system was, uh, I think, six panels, and it was 750 bucks. Uh, and from the very beginning, that you know, there's Serge, who's been working with Mort Sabotnik, and then the other three people who are, well, also Charlemagne Palestine, who really needs precise oscillators, and worked with Mort, and they were all Buchel people. And then Rich and Randy and myself, we were all bred on algorithmic composition with Joel Chatterby. So right from the beginning, the Serge was going to be a generative machine. You know, and uh, there's uh, a number of modules were, as you say, patch programmable. And so that you could have different functions. Uh, one of which, for example, the smooth and stepped function generator, which could work as a uh, slew limiter, or it could work as a, uh, uh, a staircase generator, or it could work as a slope generator, or it could work as a portamento, and so on and so on, depending on how you patched it. And so that was the that was a basic idea. Also, I mean, Serge's, Serge's uh, basic sequencer was a four by four grid. And so you could clock it this way and you could clock it this way. And so you could now move non-directionally among 16 voltage levels, as opposed to And then Serge built a, uh, a touch-sensitive keyboard sequencer, which had 12 keys and five ranks of control. And then the touch-sensitive things could control things. And there were all sorts of, you know, this can turn that on, can turn that on, and so on, which, except for the touch-sensitive keyboard, has now been emulated by Antonio Tuzzi, T-U-Z-Z-I, uh, with his Squonk module, S-Q-U-O-N-K, uh, in his modules for VCV rack. Uh, Don and Serge knew each other. Now, I think Don was a bit pissed off at Serge, but Serge was, Don was pissed off at everybody. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think Serge's mission was very clear, is to be proletarian, was to be, uh, absolutely making, you know, working-class synthesizers uh, that were, uh, you know, affordable by musicians and that didn't compromise on compositional potential. Usually, and you even see this in software design today, you know, the first thing that goes is something that will give it compositional potential because they're concentrating on something for the, the industry side of things, you know. Just to take one example, Spitfire Audio. Amazing sample libraries, recorded immaculately. And if there's microtonal potential in their stuff, it's because it survived all their scripting. You know, ah, but you know, all the film composers are gonna want this sort of thing. It's like, so that will interfere with the tuning. Oh, well, no one uses the tuning anyway. And so, you know, those, those sorts of potentials then, you know, go by the board. So uh, 
Serge wasn't going to do that. You know, it's like, hey, let's keep the interesting stuff available. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's like, and while I began working with Serge, I was also, uh, I was also uh, thinking about my own machines. Because I was at that point building the studio for the Center for Music Experiment, the analog studio. And so, uh, yeah, while that's happening, I'm also thinking about my, like, Aardvarks 4. Okay, Aardvarks 4, uh, uh, Ed Cobrin, who had built a very big, very beautiful uh, uh, digital microcomputer control system where you typed in, in the early days of live coding, typed in instructions and it sent it out to like 16 oscillators or 24 oscillators moving around in space, you know, like 20 loudspeakers hanging from the ceiling. He helped a lot with that. And when we were talking about the designs, uh, it was him and Rob Gross, another engineer, and they uh, said what you really need to do is build, you know, build circuit boards, get the circuit boards etched, and the thing's gonna last forever. Don't do breadboarding. And I said, okay, fine, fine. And uh, so, yeah, the core of Aardvarks 4 is uh, 16 modules, which are control voltage generators. They start off with a shift register feedback circuit, which is where you take the output of some bits of a shift register and feed them back into other parts of the shift register with XOR gates. Uh, and the resulting patterns can be real close to uh, pure random, uh, and depending on how, what bits you use and so on. Uh, and uh, most white noise generators for many, many years were this, uh, were some sort of little shift register feedback circuit or program. And uh, uh, the output is fairly chaotic. Uh, and uh, so then that shift register feedback goes into a sample and hold. And the sample and hold is triggered off by a low frequency oscillator, which you can voltage control as well. And then the output of the uh, shift register feedback goes through a D to A converter, which I had actually made my own out of resistors with very high levels of tolerance, bought the cheapest ones possible, and then modified them with a hammer, uh, as this way Kenneth Gaburo had showed me. Uh, and so, uh, well, you know, the eight bits are still proportioned, right? We're not, uh, uh, you know, it's like bit six is always gonna have that much, and bit five will have that much, and bit four that much. But where they are is pretty, pretty random, uh, in the, random in the teenager sense. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, each of the 16 D to A converters has a unique set of outputs, a unique set of 256, a unique spread of the 256 possible outputs. And it had a little switch on the front panel so you could do eight bits or just use six bits into the DDA converter to give you 64 levels. And then that output is, goes into an attenuator and a voltage offset. So you can have, yeah, these 16, uh, so you've got, you can control your speed and then you can control your, uh, and when it's triggered off, of course, and then you can control the spread uh, and you can compress it and shift it around. And 16 of those, and then four 8-bit uh, counters, or 
10-stage uh, ten ten sequencers, which was a 4017 CMOS chip. Two of them had pots on the outputs, so you could actually set up a little sequence. And two of them just were the straight pulse outs. And then there was a couple of filters, and uh, the whole thing was designed to do uh, a thing that Joel Chatterby had come up with called waveform assembly. And uh, although I took it much farther than Joel ever did, Joel d did one piece called Daisy where he had a drone that changed beautifully, you know, timbre. Uh, I uh, took it and took two of these waveform assembly oscillators and plugged one into the FM input of the other. All hell broke loose. <laughs> And uh, so what that is, is uh, let's say you have a sequencer with just pulses out. And so you're just going to count one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, or whatever, up to ten. And then you have a series of gates. And you take your pulse outs and you open the gates with them. So gate one opens, then gate two opens, then gate three opens, etc. Now you take... Uh, n number of gliding random voltages and you put that into the input of gate one two three four and you take the output and you mix that and what you've got then is a 10 stage thing where each of the uh, stages is moving up and down and you have a waveform with continually changing timbre so that was joel's patch and i just said okay let's add frequency modulation to that and like i said all hell broke loose and in fact, one of the movements of the uh, piece called Aardvark's Floor is all hell broke loose one Sunday afternoon when the checkered demon and his buddies hung out in Dinty Moore's saloon, which has lots of references. Uh, the checkered demon is S. Clay Wilson, underground comic, uh, and Dinty Moore's was a brand of beef stew. <laughs> but it also sounds like the name is someone who'd own a saloon. Uh, and so... Uh, yeah, all sorts of, and all hell broke loose, of course, is William Burroughs. Uh, and so, uh, uh, yeah, Aardvark's Four was both a box and it was a uh, piece. In fact, it was a series of pieces. And then I kept using it. I did another piece with it uh, once I built a few Serge modules when I was at La Trobe University. And that was called Aardvark's Five. And Aardvark's Five was a single line melody that threaded through eight loudspeakers hung on the ceiling. And I could flip switches and things and change the nature of the melody. But it was, in fact, a monophonic piece for an hour. Just an hour of you know, melodic variation uh, done with analog stuff. Uh, and uh, and you know, early primitive digital. Uh, we didn't really have a religious distinction between them at that, at that time. Uh, and uh, and now in the Eurorack world, you don't have that religious distinction either. You know, I look at the Eurorack world, and if I hadn't gotten involved in the VCV thing, I would have uh, been plunging in and spending all my non-existent money on all these amazing new modules that do all these amazing functions. Uh, but yeah, I don't have money, and I went to the VCV route. Uh, Aardvarks for... It, had to, it, was in a, it was designed so it would fit in an accordion case. I'm an accordion player, so I know that size. And uh, there's a front panel, and then there's a wooden box with a handle, 
And inside, there was the power supply is inside, and on the two edge, edges, end panels, there are two loudspeakers. Just cheap little Radio Shack things, but you could actually, it would actually, you know, self-play. which would bring us back to uh, UC San Diego and Pauline Oliveros' 1972 electronic music performance class. And Pauline was there and uh, I think there were four of us in the class and we were all males. Ah, but that was okay. Nobody, nobody was bothered by the sexual politics because uh, we were all there to learn from the master. Uh, and the first, uh, first exercise she did with us has stuck with me the rest of my life. Uh, a very simple patch. Two oscillators, one oscillator output goes into the FM input of the other. And between them, there's a VCA with the output of the first oscillator going into the VCA and going into the, uh, the output of the VCA going into the FM input of the second oscillator. And that's all it is. I mean, maybe you take a bit of top off with a low pass filter, but that's just, color, right? So you've just got this oscillator, two oscillators FM each other with a VCA in the middle and a big knob. Uh, and the big knob is uh, on the VCA and so you've got at one level zero FM and at the other end full FM, right? I mean, not even, not even going to change the frequency of the oscillators. And the uh, instruction Pauline gave to us, since there were four of us and we could take 20 minutes each, was to take 20 minutes and as a live performance, go from no FM up as slowly as you can, listening to every step of the way until you get to full FM. Uh, sounds like a trivial thing, but it was a real amazing focusing of listening, especially since each of us did it. So this was what it was four times 20 minutes you know, four of us doing this, three, you know, three times listening, one times doing. And, uh, you know, you really got into hearing lots and lots of detail. Uh, classic minimalism, right? Uh, and, uh, but really, it was, it was just such an amazing mind-altering experience. It was uh, just, you know, I think the knob was about that big. So it had a lot of room for your hand to be, be subtle. You know, I've tried this with students with like a little knob uh, and it's not the same. Got to have a big knob to really slowly get, the, to get the idea of this tiny physical, you know, uh, physical differences and the slow speed at which you do it. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe, I, maybe there is a bit of, uh, you know, female to male propaganda there and that she took these four guys who were, uh, you know, electronic music speed freaks and slowed us way down and got us to concentrate on just the tiniest of detail. But yeah, it's a great, it was a great exercise. And uh, really, all of our ears were wide open after that. That was so much fun. Uh, 
and you know, while you're doing it, you're feeling, oh shit, I'm too fast, or oh, I'm not being smooth enough, or, you know, oh, we could hear that, you know, I could hear that change. You know, I didn't want to hear that change. And so you're really trying and trying to make these, this thing, you know, this gradual change of timbre to be almost inaudible. You know, so slow and gradual that you don't, you know, you only realize in retrospect that it's changed. Uh, so yeah, that was, a, that was quite a wonderful exercise. Uh, I passed that along uh, for anybody who's interested as a teacher. There's a rather trivial point, but I've done a lot of improvising with instrumental improvisers and also a lot of improvising this is with synthesizer and modular stuff and dancers. And it's uh, difficult for, uh, thanks, when you're working with uh, instrumentalists, it's sometimes difficult to get them to understand that I have to sit at my synthesizer for a couple of hours before we get, begin playing because I'm actually inventing the instrument I'm playing with. Uh, Tim Perkis, who did Noisy People, the film, uh, he actually has worked with the same patch uh, for the past 16 years, he said. He really has just one patch that he's going to work with. And he just, so he just sets it up and bang, away he goes. Uh, and I guess I could do that, but uh, somehow every performance I like to have a different patch. Uh, so I'm actually building the instrument that I will then play on. And dancers are usually even more difficult to have them understand that because they're, that's just their body. You know, the dancers that I had the best relationships with are uh, the dancers whose fathers had a workshop uh, out the back where they would make something or uh, who were themselves involved in some sort of making that's not just immediately moving with the body. You know, if they're into weaving or, uh, you know, something. You know, they understand about making the instrument before you play it. Uh, so uh, that's... Uh, the other thing, of course, is that when you're designing a patch for working with improvisers, you actually do have to build, unless you're very much involved in playing unitary mono, you know, monostructural things, you really have to build a lot of variation into the patch because, uh, you know, a dancer can turn on a dime and give you nine cents change. And a uh, Bill Cosby uh, line. Uh, or, uh, you know, a guitarist, they can go change their timbral world, you know, incredibly in a fraction of a second. And a lot of times I would feel like I'm always playing catch-ups because I can't change my things that fast. Uh, and then I guess eventually you realize, oh, you don't have to change. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to match their rate of change. In fact, if you have a particular patch, then uh, that particular patch will, uh, you know, have its own rate of change. And so you're just working with uh, the implications of your instrument. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's a hard one, uh, but uh, it is an interesting problem. Okay, uh, now we're talking about uh, the difference, say, between working with an analog machine and working with a computer. And uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I notice when I'm working with VCV on the computer screen that uh, at a certain point, I want to have three knobs to move. Ah, and what do you do with a mouse? Pretty ridiculous. And so, you know, then the old Korg Boxo controllers comes out and it's not the same, but at least you now have, you know, a whole bunch of tactile things to work with. It's still not the same as reaching over to that, you know, one module and turning that knob. Uh, I think the way you are trained uh, to play with technology really affects for the rest of your life the way you think of technology. So I grew up in a patching environment. And uh, so I really think of, uh, even when I'm working with the computer, of things as a patching environment. And uh, so let's say I'm going to do a piece where I've got some algorithmic process and I'm gonna be controlling, let's say, contact, the sampler, with some samples on it. And uh, I don't think of it in terms of, uh, say, here's my mega sequencer controlling this stuff. I think of it in terms of patches. Here's my little box, which is making the process. Here's another little box, patching box, called contact. Here's another little patching box called the effects, and I patch one to the other. And uh, oftentimes it happens that I'll do pieces, even writing instrumental pieces, will be uh, that I've got one process and I get the results there. Now I take this, the results of this process, which will be written down on paper, and I apply another process to them, which is another patch, and then another one. And so I'm going through these stages of process uh, to get to the final result, which might be dots on a page. Uh, but in fact, the algorithmic process is still there. And I notice with a lot of the students at Box Hill who are being trained to be film music composers, they hope, uh, they've all started off by learning logic and straight sequencer stuff, right? And it's like really linear thinking. And to get them to think non-linearly and uh, with the idea that you could have these processes happening is very difficult. It really involves a changing of mind. Uh, and then some people say, well, VCV is nice, but how can I put it in contact? You know, so uh, it's like this fixed idea that there is, you know, it's also, uh, I am not so naive that I think that, uh, say, working with processes like this, being derived from cage as it is, is uh, a way of bypassing the ego. You know, I understand that that's not what's happening, uh, or although there is the possibility of it happening, there's also a possibility of it not happening. Uh, but certainly, working with processes like that is one step away from the incredibly ego-driven, every decision made by the composer, linear sequencer uh, uh, logic. I mean, you could get, have just as many uh, delusions that you are changing the world and liberating humanity by uh, stringing LFOs together in chaos modules as you can by uh, you know, specifying every note in a sequencer. Uh, but uh, it is, uh, you know, when you get people who are trained all in that linear way to then do things in a non-directional way, it really does mess with their uh, sense of the composer as God. 
uh, very nicely. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, welcome to the world of artificial intelligence and sharing your decisions with, you know, a digital clone of yourself. So, uh, yeah, that's sort of fun. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I still think of things and, you know, the world is a series of processes. But yeah, I do miss, you know, uh, I do miss, well, I miss the uh, physicality of being able to reach out for that knob and changing that. And in fact, every time I see the ad for the uh, Arturia uh, Little Freak or whatever it is, their Freak Machine, uh, which is, you know, 500 bucks that big with the uh, Audible Instruments multi-oscillators in it, uh, I get tempted. Uh, fortunately, we've got too many other expenses, so I'm not going to go out and get it. But uh, as much as I miss that reaching over and turning that knob to get that result, what I don't miss is uh, two flight cases full of analog gear pushed, being pushed over bumpy streets, cobblestone streets in Europe. I don't miss that at all, and I'm really happy to have it all on the laptop and have one or two little controllers, and if it's not as physical, fine. <laughs> you know, the dancer and the poet you're with are not helping you push this, these two flight cases up a cobblestone street hill. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's that. There's, there's the weight of it. Uh, I'm very happy now that my entire, you know, my entire studio in its widest application is two laptops and two iPads and a little mixer. You know, that's fine. Also, in the iPad world, that patching uh, uh, aesthetic is now coming back. Things like Alm or Ape Matrix, uh, you take your apps and you string them together in patches. And so you can start off with Fugue Machine. In fact, since it's an AUV3, uh, which is a new standard they have, which means you can run multiple instances of it. Uh, I could have like five of those AUV3 uh, fugue machines going into this matrix, controlling five synthesizers, and then put those five synthesizers into like five effects units and take some of the control voltage out, which is from the uh, fugue machines, and control the uh, effects on them. And so we're back to an analog patch or a pseudo-analog patch, and it's all in your cell phone uh, or your iPad. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I actually have done pieces with like the two iPads and the iPhone. <laughs>